0: If you would, open in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, the chapter 2. We're continuing on in our study through the book, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10 for this morning. And so while you're flipping there, I'm going to ask you a question. What does it mean to divide? Well, the kids here will be happy to know I'm not talking about long division in math. I'm talking about divide in the sense to split up or to separate, to create groups. So there's a scene in a, a very godly movie called Charlie and the Chocolate Factory uh, where there's a room full of trained squirrels and they sort through these nuts to put in the candy. And they have little stations where they take the nut, they knock on it, and they crack it open. They test the nut to see if it's good or bad. And there's really only two options there. Good nuts are going to be used in the candy. The bad nuts are sent down the trash chute to the incinerator. So, one of the spoiled kids on that tour insisted on taking a sorting squirrel home for a pet. So she bursts her way down into the sorting area to try to take one. Well, instead, the squirrels attacked her and trapped her. Then you see one squirrel go up to this little girl and knock on her forehead and listen. So, the squirrel heard something very interesting. It turns out This little girl was one bad nut. So the squirrels took her and they pushed her down the garbage chute to the incinerator. Don't worry, it wasn't lit that day, so she was fine. But as silly as that story is, there's something useful in it. There was something about her that was bad, that was lacking, that was unworthy. And the judge of the whole earth will one day set every human into one of two categories. The righteous will receive an eternal inheritance in glory, while the wicked will go into the fires forevermore. So there will only be good or bad. Well, what's going to make the difference between the good and the bad? Well, faith in the Son of God will be the only thing that will render a righteous verdict for you. Jesus will be the judge and he will divide his own from the wicked. Christ will act as the cornerstone. The wicked will be crushed by him while the righteous will be built upon him. So here's the thesis for this sermon. Because Christ is the cornerstone, we must delight in him. So with that intro, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones But now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that though we were once not a people, you have made us your people. We thank you that though once we had not received mercy, we have now received mercy through Christ. Father, I pray that we would see that and understand that clearly as we walk through this text this morning. Guide us and help us, we pray. We ask it in Christ's name. So we're going to look at three sections today. And the first is that we're going to look at Christ, the cornerstone throughout this passage. So this is talking about Christ, the cornerstone. So this passage is really all about who we are as the church. And this section of scripture includes some of the richest and some of the most profound language on the church in the entire Bible. The descriptions and the titles that Peter applies to us are steeped in Old Testament significance. He takes Old Testament themes and categories and he applies them to the church now. So whether Jew or Gentile, the readers of this letter would have been absolutely shocked at the descriptions that Peter gives us here. And the shock is that Peter uses terms formerly exclusively applied to the Jewish nation and he takes those same terms and he applies them to the New Testament church in a primarily Gentile region. So everything he wrote about, including the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church, is founded upon who Christ is. And so if we are to understand what Peter says about the church in this passage, we need to first understand what it says about Christ. So first, Peter gives Christ the title of a living stone in verse 4. Now, the Old Testament is full of imagery of stones. The patriarchs of Genesis often set up stones as altars. Sacrifice to the Lord. They also used stones to set up monuments and memorials to remember what God had promised them or what He had done for them. The book of Exodus explains how Israel is to make altars for sacrifice with uncut stones. God provided water from the rock not just once but twice in the wilderness as Israel wondered. The Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem was made of stones. So all of these Old Testament pictures are focused on coming to the Lord. And worship, every one of them. The temple is likely the main thing we're supposed to think about here. And yet the physical temple was not alive. Rocks are not living things. Minerals are not living organisms. Peter wants us to make comparisons and contrasts throughout this passage. So while the Old Testament temple is where God was present in a special way, the temple itself was just a shadow of what was to come. It was a type of the true temple to come so with Christ the true temple has come and the true temple is far greater than that old stone one in John chapter 1 verse 14 which is one of my favorite verses it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us the word in that verse is Christ himself the special presence of god in the old testament was in the tabernacle and then in the temple once it was built under king solomon But the word dwelt there in John 1.14 can also be translated as tabernacled. So Christ is a living stone because he is everything that the Old Testament tabernacle and temple pointed forward to. So unlike those man-made structures, Christ is the fullness of the presence of God among man. So if Christ is the true temple to which those Old Testament things were just pictures, then he must be the center of all praise and worship. Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the real temple, the object of all praise, and the source of all life. So only those connected with this living stone may live. Jesus is the anchor, the foundation, and the source of all. Well, second, Peter tells us that Jesus, the living stone, was rejected by man. The nations of the Old Testament refused To acknowledge the true God. They scorned and rejected the Lord of Israel, but they weren't the only ones to do so. Even many of the Jews rebelled and broke the covenant with the Lord. The living stone was always with Israel, and yet many rejected him and chose to disobey instead. When Jesus came to earth, the Jews and the Jewish leaders rejected him too. Those who should have known best who the Messiah was going to be, who saw Christ. They rejected him. Well, third, Peter says that in God's sight, this living stone was chosen and precious. The father delights in his son. Even before Christ went to the cross, the Lord says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Before creation itself, the Trinity agreed on the covenant of redemption that the son would take on flesh and redeem a people for himself. And after sacrificing himself on the cross and rising again, the praise and the reason to praise Christ is even greater. Philippians 2 says that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Christ is chosen and precious because he is the Son of God and he is the perfect God-man. And Peter is going to explain this more by using three Old Testament quotes, some of which will be familiar from what we've sung and read and looked at already in the service. So first, Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16 and verse 6. And in that passage, the prophet Isaiah pronounced judgment on Judah and Israel for rebelling against God. The leaders had perverted justice and rejected God. And if you remember our scripture reading, it was a pretty harsh past passage. It was not a pleasant fun passage to read through parts of. Those people, those evil leaders were walking in their own ways rather than God's. Because of their sin, they were going to be punished. That's what that passage in Isaiah is about. But amidst the announcement of judgment in chapter 28, God also promised that he would establish one who would be faithful and just. The remnant who still followed the Lord would be saved through trusting in him. So while the nation walked in rebellion, then there would come a day when God would set up a godly king who would lead Israel in righteousness. The king would be chosen and precious. So in 1 Peter two four, Peter already called Jesus chosen and precious in verse 4. So what we see here is a pattern of the apostles taking Old Testament texts and applying them to Christ. The Lord Jesus is the living stone laid as a foundation in Zion for justice and mercy. So that's the Isaiah 28 quote. Next in verse 7, Peter quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. So Psalm 118, it's the final Hallel Psalm in the book of Psalms. Hallel Psalms were sung on the way to the temple or on special days of feasting and uh, occasions to celebrate. That's when you sung this Psalm. So the people of Israel would marched to the temple and worshipped together as they went, and they would be singing psalms like this psalm. They are triumphant. They are glorious songs about the greatness of God and his works for his people. Psalm 118 in particular was written about a Davidic king returning to the temple to praise God after a great victory. So the picture is that there has been a great battle between the evil nations that are opposed to God and the army of the Lord's anointed. So the other nations are the builders in that Quote, they are trying to establish their own empires and their own plans. They refuse to submit to the rightful king. They rejected the true king in favor of themselves and what they wanted to do. They thought they could shame the Lord's anointed one and shame Israel through battle. But the stone that they have rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone is the principal foundation of a building. Builders have to carefully search for the right rock to use as a cornerstone. Choosing the wrong cornerstone will make a building worthless. So stonemasons, they would search through massive stones until they found just the right one on which to build. Well, the nations are like those masons looking for a cornerstone. But those nations failed to find or become the right cornerstone. Peter tells us that the true cornerstone, this great Davidic king, is found in Christ. Alone, He is the one who is rejected by the nations and yet has become the cornerstone. Jesus himself quotes this psalm in Matthew 21. And there he declares that he is the cornerstone from Psalm 118. And he called the Pharisees the builders. So the Pharisees were the religious leaders of Israel. They were proud Jews. But Jesus told them that they were the same as those wicked nations because they rejected Christ. All who reject Christ are the builders. Christ is the cornerstone and there is no other. So the final quote in verse 8 is from Isaiah chapter 8 verse 14. And the problem in this passage was that Judah and Israel were threatened by powerful nations. But rather than turning to God and asking him for help and going in repentance, they had another idea. They said, what if we form some other or form an alliance with some other powerful nations and get them to come help us against our enemies. If we have a powerful alliance, we'll be fine. Well, the job of the prophet Isaiah was to warn them about the dangers of an alliance. They didn't need an alliance. They just needed to go to the Lord in repentance. But they wouldn't do that. So because of their hardness of heart, God announced that he would bring judgment on Israel and on Judah for their rebellion. But there's also a promise In this passage, if you trust in the Lord and walk in the fear of him, then you will be rescued. The judgment will not fall on you. So in the same pronouncement, we see both the promise of judgment and also the promise of rescue for the faithful. So while the stone would be the solid foundation for the faithful, for those walking in rebellion to God, it would be their judgment. Isaiah 8 specifically says that the stone is the Lord, all caps, all caps. That means Yahweh. It is the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh himself, who is the stone. Well, Peter takes that same stone and says that it refers to Christ. The Lord Jesus is Yahweh. Christ, God incarnate, is the stone. Christ is the great divider. So for those under God's mercy, he is the foundation and the Savior. But for the wicked, he is offensive and dreadful the mystery of the chosen and the precious living stone. Well, the final description of Christ in this passage is in verse 9. Jesus is the great caller. He has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The words of God are powerful and effective. The Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. And then in John 1, 3 and 4, we read that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. So don't think as we look at this text that Jesus' call is just a general proclamation or a help wanted ad. His call is an authoritative command that both enables and causes us to run to faith, run to him in faith. So just as Lazarus did not argue when Jesus called him out of the grave, so we will obey when Christ calls us. He has the power to effectually call all of us, all of his own. To himself, he has called a people for himself to walk in the light of his being. So, in summary of this point, Peter has used rich Old Testament imagery and applied it to the person of Jesus Christ. He is the living stone rejected by men but precious in God's sight. Christ is at the same time the great judge and savior. Jesus is the cornerstone on which the church is constructed and on which the enemies of God will stumble. And be destroyed. He's the great dividing stone. So that was looking at Christ, the cornerstone. Now we're going to talk about unbelievers, the disobedient stumblers. So, this is about unbelievers. So, as we just said, Christ is the living stone. He is the great divider. And the thing he divides is types of people. And there's only two types of people in the world believers and unbelievers. There's no middle category and there's no gray area in between. In the end, you are either built up on Christ or you are crushed by him. So this category of unbelievers are those who will one day be crushed for their rebellion. Well, the first thing Peter tells us about them is in verse 4, where we are told that they rejected Christ. The Son of God came into the world and the world did not know him. John three nineteen. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So the world hates righteousness and holiness because it reveals the depths of their sin and their hatred for God. Mankind has chosen its sin over the Lord. Man has decided to try and be gods themselves rather than going to the only one who is truly God. And this is... This is a decision made by man throughout history. Cain rejected Christ. men of Noah's day rejected Christ and his prophet. The nations at Babel chose to try and deify themselves rather than to submit to the Lord. Pharaoh chose rebellion and it cost him his life. The nations wrongfully attacked Israel and they were destroyed for their rejection of Christ. And even those within Israel who rejected Christ were made to stumble over the cornerstone. And were ultimately crushed. And then the Pharisees in Jesus' day saw the Messiah. They saw him in person. But they were filled with hate and malice. Their only hope of rescue, their only hope, they denied and they crucified. And the people of today are no different. The culture has rejected Christ and the truths of this world, leading to the downfall of our society. Look around at this once very powerful nation. The people are rebelling more and more, walking away from scripture more and more, and so the downfall into sin and chaos is only speeding up. And all of this because the unbelieving world hates God. The unbelieving world has rejected the cornerstone. In verse 7, Peter contrasts the results of Christ's work for the believer and for the unbeliever. The believer gains honor through the living stone, but the unbeliever will receive the opposite. And we'll see in the next point that the believer will not be put to shame for trusting in Christ. But for those who have rejected the Lord, they will be shamed. They chose wrongly. Instead of choosing to serve the Lord of life, they chose themselves. They put their hope in the wrong place and so they are humiliated. The one they rejected has proven himself to be Lord over all. And that Lord has now rejected them. For this reason, they're given over to the hardness of their heart. The unbeliever is trapped in his sin and rebellion. And for this reason, Christ is not their savior, but their judge. Light and wisdom can only come through Christ. And so for those who reject him, there's nothing left to guide them. They stumble around blindly. They reach out for anything and everything to give them direction. But all the things they seek after to try to guide them, they're just as empty and directionless. Therefore, they trip over the stone. The truths trip them up, confuses them, and it makes them angry. There is nothing more offensive to the unbeliever than the word of God. It is the thorn in his side, the burn in his saddle, and the sweat in his eyes. The same living stone that brings life to the redeemed saints is the torment of the unbeliever. Christ is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Then verse 8. Peter tells us that the reason they stumble is because they disobey the word. So the believer was reborn with the imperishable seed of the word of God in chapter 1, verse 23. The word was the good news preached to the saints in chapter 1, verse 25. The word is the pure spiritual milk which we are to long for like newborn infants in chapter 2, verse 2. So that same word that brings life and maturity to the saints is death. To the unbeliever. For it is the way in which Jesus speaks to us and grows us. That's what builds us up. But it condemns the rebellious. For the rebel to God, it is the savor of death. In the Bible, the reign of God is declared and confirmed. His righteousness and His justice are preached throughout. So the pronouncement that there is a holy God that they will have to answer to is the most abhorrent dread in the unbeliever's life. Therefore, they'll do whatever they can to avoid, ignore, and to rebel against the word of God. And if you throw out the perfect and inerrant revelation of God, what do you have left to guide you? By rejecting the Lord and his word, they reject reason, morality, and Christ's lordship. And that leaves the rebel with nothing but sin and darkness. And that means that the unbeliever is just biding his time until he faces the judge. Peter tells us, however, that this was no surprise for God. The rejection of Christ by mankind was not a surprise or a shock. It didn't force God to alter his plans. The Lord used man's evil plans to bring about Calvary, the very event that brought redemption to his elect. Everything that comes to pass has been ordained by God. And verse 8 tells us that the unbeliever, unbeliever was destined to disobey the word. And to stumble. That does not mean that God caused them to sin or made them sin, but that He used their own wicked plans to bring about more good. God is not the author of sin, but He is able to direct and utilize evil man's plans to bring about good and His glory in the end. And that's really one of the most mysterious things in Scripture, and it's really beyond our ability to fully grasp. But for now, just know that God was not surprised by evil. Just as the elect were chosen and ordained by God, so he allowed for evil men to choose to rebel. And to disobey in verse 8, it isn't just unbelief. This is an obstinate and a hardened heart towards the Lord. They hate God, and so they are on the path to judgment. So just as God has called his elect out of the world, so he has chosen to leave others in their sin and rebellion. And when they receive their final punishment, it will be only what they fully deserved. For all those who are called by Christ, we are taken off of that path to destruction, and we are placed on the path to glory. So the last section here, believers who are built on Christ. So we're talking about believers, Christians now. So Peter says a lot about who we are as the church. And while these things are individually true for believers, the primary concern in these verses is who we are corporately as the church. We live in one of the most individualistic societies in the history of the world. Now, there can be some good things that come with that, but there are far more dangers. So we need to remember here that we are members of one body. The hands will affect the feet, which will affect the back. We're all connected. And so the following identity that we have is true only as we are all united to one Christ by the one Holy Spirit. We'll also see in these descriptions, rich Old Testament imagery that is taken and applied to Gentile believers. So all the glorious descriptions once used for ethnic Israel alone will now be placed and Peter will apply them to the New Testament church. So first, Peter describes believers as those who come to Christ in verse 4. Now, the verb there can also be translated to draw near. Now, it's not a simple movement. It's not just walking. It's a rich word that Peter uses. It's the same word used throughout the Old Testament for worship. The word was used for the congregation of Israel drawing near to the presence of God in the tabernacle. It describes how Moses went up Mount Sinai as God's glory rested on the mountain in fire and lightning. When the people of Israel were too terrified by the voice of the Lord so that they did not want to hear him speak anymore... They sent Moses to go near, to draw near to the Lord for them. This word is used for the priests when they draw near to the altar to offer sacrifices. Then the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, he takes this same word and he uses it for how we must come before God in worship. So at the simplest level, this is a call to worship, a call to faith, a call to believe in the Lord Jesus as your Lord. But it's also describing a continual process by which we draw near in faith for help, to repent, and to worship Christ. So it involves a communal reverence before the holiness of an almighty God. We are to regularly come to Christ in faith. We must continually come to him in humility as we worship. So just as the Old Testament Jews were called to draw near to God, now the Gentiles are called to draw near to the Lord in worship. Those who were once far off now have full access to draw near to Christ. In verse 5, Peter teaches us the result of drawing near to Christ. And the result once again proves that drawing near means more than just intellectual assent or a mere profession of faith. As we draw near, we become living stones. Going to Christ in faith and resting in Him is what it means to believe in the gospel. Another term in theology for this same idea is union with Christ. Our union with Christ means that we are made like Him. We take on many of His amazing qualities. And that doesn't mean we take on deity. Rather, the Spirit works His fruit in our lives, in our hearts. We are trained in what are called the communicable attributes of God. We become like living stones because we are connected to the true living stone. Because He has united Himself. To us So the purpose of our being made living stones after Christ is so that we may be built into a spiritual house. So ignore your individualistic uh, objections right now that might be rising. We are together being built into a house. It isn't just about you being made into a house, but you all. So all the saints from throughout time are made into this house. Christ, the living stone, fulfilled the types of the tabernacle and the temple. Christ is the tabernacle and the temple. And as you are united to him by faith, you too become a holy dwelling place for God. The Holy Spirit dwells within your heart, meaning that the presence of God resides in you, his temple. Jesus is the true temple, and he resides in the heart of his elect. His spiritual house grows. As he brings us into his house. It's really a serious and mysterious matter. We see the seriousness of the same idea and the same doctrine in 1 Corinthians 6. Now there, Paul is rebuking sexual immorality in the church. But the heart of his argument as to why sexual immorality is so dangerous for a believer is all based on union with Christ. In verse 15, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Then in verse 17, he says, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And then finally, in verses 19 through 20, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are joined into the house of God. We bear his name upon our foreheads and have his spirit in our hearts. We are the household. Of God. We are the lineage of Christ. We are His ambassadors and His emissaries on the earth. And that is what it means that we are being built into a holy priesthood, as Peter puts it. We have been set apart for a holy purpose. And as members of this house of God, we are destined for honor and glory in Christ. We are united to Him who is chosen and precious. Therefore, unlike the wicked who will be shamed on the last day, we will receive honor. At the last day. Serving the Lord in holiness is the only path to joy and blessing now and forever. We won't be honored for our ability to save ourselves or for our natural abilities. We will receive honor through faith in Christ. The honor does not come from the one chosen, but the one who chose. Verse nine refers to believers as a chosen race. And this is another term once only used to describe Israel. Well, Peter now calls the church the chosen race. The people of God are no longer determined primarily by ethnic categories, but through faith in Christ. Christ has created a new race based entirely on faith. God has made us into a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And both of these terms come straight out of Exodus chapter 19. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the promise of God to his church in Exodus is the same promise he fulfills to his church through Christ. So often we like to make Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church into two completely separate entities. But Peter's applying of the same terms meant especially for Israel to the church shows that they're really the same group. Even in the Old Testament, the means of salvation were through faith alone. Habakkuk 2.4 says that the righteous shall live by faith. They look forward to the cross while we look backward. The church is just living in the last days where the full plan of God has been revealed and the Gentiles have been brought into the people of God. No longer are God's people an ethnic or geopolitical entity. We are a spiritual house, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. We are the saints of God. We are those who are God's possession, as Peter puts it. He made us and he redeemed us so that we would be his. And Christ's lordship doesn't just mean he is your master. You are also his inheritance and reward for his redemptive work. Christ is the Lord of the world who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We were once blind. We were once stumbling in a state of unbelief. God has brought us into the light. He has given us eyes to see. Once we were nobody. We weren't a people. We were pagans, we were rebels, we were from our own houses rather than from God's. We had no heritage, we had no lineage on our own. In fact, the one heritage we can claim is from the first Adam. And all we received from him was condemnation and curse. But in the new Adam, we have become God's people. We were deserving of death and hell for our sin and yet that is not what we received. You were worthy of only judgment and death and yet you have now received mercy. And the language there in verse 10 is actually a reference to the book of Hosea. In that book, Israel is compared to Hosea's wife Gomer who commits adultery again and again. And yet God tells Hosea to forgive her and love her anyway. Gomer was a picture of Israel's spiritual infidelity. They hoard after other gods and forsook the Lord's love. They spurned their husband. But despite that, God was willing to forgive her if she repented and returned to him. Our spiritual idolatry and rebellion, they were no different than Gomer's adultery. And yet in Christ, we have received mercy and have been declared God's people. In Christ, we have been totally and completely transformed and added into the people of God. We've been given the status of saints of the Lord through our union with Christ. And that citizenship comes only with good things. Even the duties we are called to are good and pleasant now. That doesn't mean they're always easy, but they are always good. And for all these grand statements about who Christ is and consequently who his church is, Peter only lists two duties in this passage. The passage is overwhelmingly focused on the indicatives of who Christ is and who you are as his church. But there are a couple of commands here, so let's close by looking at these two commands. First, Peter commands you, his church, to offer spiritual sacrifices in verse 5. Unlike the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament priests, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. We are to worship in every area of our lives. We are to honor God with our heart, mind, and body. Everything we do, we are to do with a heart of worship and thankfulness to the Lord. That is our spiritual offering. But our offerings must be made through Christ and in obedience to his word. If we seek to offer to him that which is forbidden in his word, it isn't an offering. It becomes a sin. We make offerings only as we trust and obey the Lord. And I think the most important way in which we offer spiritual sacrifices as the church is as we gather together for worship. Remember that it isn't just you as an individual, it's the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, God's possession, that is to offer these spiritual sacrifices. So that's the first command. The second command is that Peter tells the church to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. This is in verse 9. So the duty of the church is not only to worship and to offer sacrifices, but to spread the gospel, to evangelize. The call to the entire church is to evangelize the nations. You as an individual and all of you together are tasked with this duty. That's why we support local missions. That's why we support global mission. That's why we are concerned that everyone is capable of explaining the gospel and inviting people to church with you. Peter doesn't mention here any gimmicks, any programs, any specific worship styles. The message is simple. The message that you are called to proclaim is the glory of Jesus Christ. That is all the church needs to do, to talk about the wonders of our God openly. So in summary, Christ is the living stone that divides. Unbelievers disobey the word, they reject Christ, and they stumble over the cornerstone. But you, the church, are God's special people who have been united to Christ and are built up on him. Therefore, rest in him, offer spiritual sacrifices, and proclaim the beauty of Christ to a very dark world that needs the truth. That is our calling. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have done an amazing thing, and it. it is marvelous in our eyes. The redemption that you have wrought for us is beyond words. It is incomparable. It is rich. It is deep. You have remade us into an entirely new thing, into your church. So Lord, work in us that which is pleasing. Continue to sanctify us and make us holy. But give us the confidence and the boldness to proclaim your greatness to the world, even to encourage one another by talking about your excellencies. Lord, build up our picture of you in our minds, become greater in our minds, that we may love you more and serve you better. Lord, work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. We ask it in Christ's name.